coming up on Tech Nation, venture capitalist Himantanasia talks about what technology has done for the little guy. The economies of scale have been unscaled. Then on Tech Nation Health, understanding more about our immune systems and what happens as we age. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the maker movement in healthcare, from nurses to doctors to patients, and his own experience creating a new surgical tool for harvesting bone marrow. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. The Law & Order television series and all its many spinoffs has been airing since 1990. Its 27 years of episodes, all in rerun, might just be unparalleled. Still, the older the episode, the more painful it can be to watch. Painful in the sense that a detective's pager goes off in the middle of a critical scene, and the junior partner excuses himself to search for a payphone. In those days, pagers only gave you about ten digits, and by that I mean numbers, not letters. So unless you called into the number or had some numeric code already set up, well, you better find a payphone. Watching such episodes makes me feel impatient. Hey, folks, let's get on with the story. And yet something else has pretty much remained the same. How the investigation gets posted up on large bulletin boards with big glossy photos, pushpins and maps, and yarn connecting people and places. You might call it the database of the investigation. Of course, this is all set up as a plot device to bring viewers quickly up to date. But I like what I see there, and recent episodes haven't changed all that much. The bulletin board is see-through acrylic plastic, the pushpins have been replaced with some kind of stickum, and the yarn? Long strips that also stick to the acrylic as well. While this is television, the human brain does like that tangible feel, being able to sense the forest by stepping back from an assemblage of trees. When I reflected on this recently, my mind immediately went to Robert Mueller and the investigation he's leading. I wonder, did they have a secure conference room somewhere? Every wall covered with glossy pictures and sticky connecting tape? A map of the world, prominently featuring the U.S. and Russia. And where else? The Ukraine? The Canary Islands? Even if there is no wall, they have to track all their data somehow, and they have to do it in a way that people can see. Think about it. We see headlines about people whose offices, homes, and electronics have been searched. We read indictments, which give simple examples of what the team possesses in far greater detail. We hear about interviews after the fact. And then there is the data all these folks have gathered under their own steam which we can only guess at. Bank records, phone records, email, databases? A really fascinating question for me is how in heaven's name does the Mueller investigation keep all its data straight? 
How does it see the forest for the trees? Or how does it pick out one or two trees in this seemingly limitless forest? At some time in the future, documents will be requested under the Freedom of Information Act, but that doesn't come with the investigative database. And who's in there, if only by proximity? It really doesn't pay to be Paul Manafort's pizza man. So if you've ever been a data researcher looking through a tsunami of ever-mounting data, you know that most data means nothing. Look at something. So what? Move along. But a minute later, an hour, a month, even a year, suddenly you say, wait a minute, is this new piece of data I'm looking at before or after that old piece of data? And there's the hint. It's data until in context it suddenly becomes information. The Mueller crew must be swimming in it. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation how technology has enabled the economies of scale to trickle down to everyone. Anyone can start a successful global business. And on TechNation Health, understanding more about our immune systems and how they change as we age. We'll hear from Dr. Thomas Olin, the CEO of Cancera from Stockholm, Sweden, and the maker movement in healthcare. Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the niche of Maker Nurse and his own experience developing a new surgical tool. With every venture capitalist I've ever met, if someone had a good idea or even went so far as to build an invention, the next thing they say is, but will it scale? I asked Hemant Tanasia, a managing director at the venture capital firm General Catalyst, explain to us, what are they talking about? For over a century, scale has been a key measure of progress in society, right? If you think about what we've done over the last 100 years, we have, uh, you know, scaled an entire middle class. We've moved over 100 million people into middle class, and we've done it in a bunch of different ways. And if you look at China, they used the same scaling principles and moved 300 million people into middle class in two decades, just the last two decades of the last century. So scale has been the measure of progress. So as venture capitalists, we always think about where are these companies going to get really big because that's where economic gains lie. And when we say economies of scale, there's a whole lot of things that you could get because you got that big. That's right. So if you look at what we have done with our healthcare system, right, we have scaled and we've built these large health chains all over the country the cost of delivering healthcare in our country is 
largely becoming unaffordable. It's almost 20% of GDP today. And, I mean, that's the an example of scaling, which had its benefits. In the early parts of what we've done with healthcare, we've gone and made a huge impact on infectious disease. We've made a huge impact on trauma. Infant mortality rates have gone down significantly. But that experience is terrible. You go into a hospital today, the physician, you maybe get 15 minutes with them. They don't know who you are. You walk away, you're not, you have no idea what kind of care it's going to be. And that is the experience that's unaffordable for us today. Well, when I think of you know economies of scale, I often think of like manufacturing. If you build one, it's very expensive. If you build 10,000, you can really drive the cost per unit down. And that's one of the reasons you want to be able to sell a lot of them. That's right. So scale, it was all about vertical integration. How do you build large factories that can pump out cars or that can pump out other products, as you mentioned, in manufacturing, in large warehouses, distribution centers? Walmart became the everything store that you can go get everything at in your neighborhood. And that was to actually get to a basic level of uh, services in society, basic level of retail, basic level of uh, healthcare, education, banks, banking. And if you look at each of those areas today, do we think our healthcare system is working? Do we think our education system is uh, training our kids for the 21st century? We all know the banking system nearly failed in 2008. I mean, every one of these things was great for a while, and it's all collapsing under its own weight because it's almost too big. Big, big, big. Yes. Well, so that has to do with this original push to scale. You couldn't get those benefits by unless you got big. You had to do it to scale. But we live in a different world now. Anybody can be an entrepreneur. That's right. So um, what has happened now is all the elements that led to scale, big factories, computing in the last few decades since the Internet, uh, distribution, um, warehousing, all of the capabilities entrepreneurs can rent today. Right, so you can rent computing from Amazon. You can rent distribution from FedEx or uh, U.S. Postal Service. So all of a sudden, the task of building a company has become a lot simpler for the entrepreneur. And this is what we describe in the book as this notion of renting scale. And if you have not, you're an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter if your product is viable only for a handful of people or it applies to the entire world, you can start by renting scale and use as much of it as it's needed uh, to go serve your market. And as we all learned recently from Amazon, who didn't really want to go around and deliver all this stuff, they wanted to get the U.S. Postal Service to do it. The U.S. Postal Service said, like everybody else, if you bring us a lot of stuff, we'll give you a really good rate. The delivery is no different than if you just go and give the U.S. Postal Service one thing. It might cost you a little more. But as you grow, you can also do a flexible economy of scale there. You don't have to worry about getting your product to anybody's house or business. That's exactly right. It's all taken care of for you. And so we certainly have big storage in the, in the cloud and, and computation in the cloud. We certainly have uh, the whole idea of, of distribution if you have a physical product. What other kinds of things have been unscaled, if you will? Well, other parts are manufacturing. Um, the existence of social media, what that has done essentially is you can reach your customers anywhere in the world on these platforms, 
right? You used to do this mass media advertising before to try to get people to be aware of your products. Now you can reach exactly who you want to because of all the data uh, that's available about the various folks that spend time on these social media platforms. So literally every aspect of what it takes to build a business, you can actually rent it today and focus yourself as the entrepreneur on building the best product for your customers, using data and AI to keep iterating to make sure you're listening to your customer and, and building better and better products. So it's much simpler to be an entrepreneur today. I was just thinking of uh, podcasting. We needed to switch podcasters, and you can imagine in the San Francisco Bay Area, huge pressures on, you know, if you have any of these skills, Forget it. You know, you got it. You're practically shaking people. Can you give me some of your time to do what we need to do? And uh, someone said to me, well, "Why don't you just go look on the internet?" And it's like, within a day, I had hired someone in Galway, Ireland. <laughs> He's been terrific. I just reached out, got it, and we handled the whole thing. We handled payment via, uh, you know, one of the PayPal, yeah. Venmo, Zelle, all of these things that are available now to make everything fit together, and we didn't even have to move. That's exactly right. I think I think uh, resources, access to talent to build your company, that's another thing that's available worldwide for you because you can reach them, and you can pay them, and you can employ them. Now, you're a venture capitalist, and you want to invest in companies, but you're not really going to invest in a really tiny company, right, that won't scale. Yeah, I mean, I I think as a as a venture capitalist, what we look for is what are the ideas where the the customers for that particular idea are significant, so you can actually build a big company. But the philosophy of how to build products for those types of businesses is no different from the ones, uh, the tools that are available and required to build uh, for ideas that may be smaller. So you have to figure out whether the business proposition put before you is really going to scale. That's right. Is it really going to be relevant to a large number of customers? And that's the the idea of uh, – because that translates into large revenue and therefore the large outcomes from a venture capital and investment perspective. And you have to be able to understand that not a lot of people are going to do it. You have to jump out in front with this. Because if a lot of people could do it, even though it's a good idea and a lot of people will want it, it will be served by niche businesses. That's right. That's right. I, I, I think uh, usually when, when we meet founders in the very early stages, they typically know something and they have a core insight that most people in the world don't understand. And that is the reason why they're able to attract uh, the customers for their product and and scale faster than others would. I mean, there's lots of examples. There were many companies that tried to do what Facebook tried to do or what Snapchat tried to do. And, uh, you know, these founders were special. They had a core insight that they were operating on. And uh, we look for uh, that kind of a specialized intuition that these founders are building the products with. So that if you have a particular insight that other people don't have, or a particular technology, or a particular uh, business model that nobody's really thinking of. Its very originality may get you big investment so that you could go forward and spread it before anybody else gets there. Yeah. I mean, to be very honest, oftentimes we don't even know 
how high the ceiling is for these ideas, right? When when Facebook first started, uh, which was 15 years ago, now, no one knew it was going to be as profound as the company it's become. Uh, it was just a knockoff on the hot or not uh, side of just, you know, looking at uh, students on campus and their photos. So uh, I, I think uh, as early stage investors, you almost do yourself a disservice when you overthink projecting the future. And what you want to look for is, is there a great intuition? Is there a product based on that intuition that those custom, their customers absolutely love? And can you see this growing? And, you know, as you know, in our business, there's a lot of uh, uh, failures. The success rate isn't that high. It's just that the ones that really work make up for a lot of our losses. Well, I have to say that I first came across your concept of on scale, and I didn't even know it was you. I was reading the Harvard Business Review, and I loved the title. It was Economies of On Scale, Why Business Has Never Been Easier for the Little Guy. And I didn't really think of you in relation to this investment. Uh, a company isn't successful unless it's big. That's another misperception in, in the world. But it was the whole idea of who the little guy is. You can still have a full-time job and have a very successful little guy business. I think it's a perspective. Everybody could be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. I I, I think this notion that entrepreneurs uh, start companies, the easier it's gotten has evolved into this notion that you can actually live an entrepreneurial life. So we, we, we used to go spend 20 to 25 years in college and then work for the rest of our lives, often in one place, if you look back, you know, a few decades. And now you're in this mode of, hey, I can learn new things and pursue my passions at any time and then translate those into work. And so, uh, you know, this notion that you live an entrepreneurial life is the way to succeed in the 21st century. Learn, try new things. If you if you think about the gig economy, that's the early version uh, sort of view into what work and, and uh, career is going to look like in the next few decades as a result. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira again, and my guest today is Hemant Taneja, a managing director at the venture capital firm General Catalyst. His experience and interests range from investing in startups to transforming energy policy to creating and supporting nonprofits in education. Hemant is a board member of the Khan Lab School, and he teaches a course in artificial intelligence, entrepreneurship, and society at Stanford University. He's here today with his book, Unscaled, how AI and the next generation of upstarts are creating the economy of the future. Well, enough about the little guys. What about, what about particular kinds of businesses? What, how do we break those down? In finance, we have the PayPals, the Venmos, the Zells, the Squares, all of those kinds of things. It seems like all of those apps, all of those uh, companies are all on one side of the line. And then we have what we call traditional finance. They just haven't gotten there. Yeah. Um, I think finance is going through uh, its own transformation, much like other sectors as we describe in the book. And uh, what has happened over the last uh, couple of decades, we have figured out a way for consumers to pay each other and peer-to-peer payments, as you mentioned, and in terms of uh, what PayPal did, what Venmo has done, which is also part of PayPal now. And, uh, and then th- there's been this other wave of uh, payment companies like Stripe and Square that have made it really easy 
for small businesses to start with and now even increasingly bigger businesses to accept payments online. So as payments moves online, it becomes easier for entrepreneurs to be able to sell globally because of the power of the Internet. And that is transforming everything in terms of how we think about the rest of the financial stack. But frankly, the big banks haven't really caught on yet. I think they're going to, through major changes over the next couple of decades, to uh, become digital themselves. And, of course, they're ruled by a lot of regulation. Lots of regulation. My personal view on regulation is it will also evolve to be uh, appropriate for the online world. But uh, at the same time, the point I was more focused on is that you don't need a thousand banks in this country. If banks are going to be digital and you don't have to go to the local branches to go do banking, why should there be so many? That is not what has happened in other industries. So I just think there's a lot of consolidation that's going to happen and uh, there'll be a few that survived that have uh, embraced this notion of going digital and, and, and engaging with these kinds of new financial services products. Now, in terms of healthcare, there's no doubt that costs are out of control, almost uncontrollable. We've got the insurance, pe- you know, we've got we have a whole bunch of stuff going on here in the healthcare area. How can onscaling penetrate that industry? I think it might be best to ex- uh, describe this with an example. So let's take diabetes. There's about 30 million people that have uh, diabetes in the country. Only about a million or so have genetic causes for diabetes. Rest of the people have diabetes caused by changes in diet over the several decades, less the, our addiction to sugar, if you will. And uh, the way we have treated diabetes for these folks is, you know, they go see their primary care physician a couple of times a year and uh, to check what their blood glucose levels are looking like. By the way, if they're good enough to see their PCP, they're probably okay. In between those few visits in the year is when they have emergency visits because their uh, you know, vitals are failing and that leads to comorbidities, retinal blindness, and all these other issues. This disease is, again, for almost 10% of the population is terrible, and it's, it costs about $300 billion a year. Unscaling, as an example, we described this company, Livongo, in the book. What Livongo does is it gives you a connected glucometer, and when you every time you check your blood glucose, that data goes in the cloud, is being reviewed by machine learning algorithms, and if there's any adjustments you need to do to your day-to-day, it'll tell you, go for a walk, drink a glass of water, drink some orange juice, just to get your blood glucose levels in normal levels. And, and if there was a real pattern of degradation of your health, somebody would call you. Uh, an endocrinologist or a diabetes coach would actually call you. So all of a sudden, instead of having these 30 million people go see their PCP three, four times a year. that's your primary care physician. Primary care physician, which is our existing model. Uh, the few endocrinologists we have in this country, the few thousand, they can actually focus on the one the diabetics that truly do need help. And using machine learning and AI, we can just keep others uh, healthy and, and uh, not worried about their disease on a day-to-day basis. So that's an example of a company, and I believe companies like Livongo, when they're fully rolled out in this country, will reduce our healthcare costs from $300 billion by about $100 billion uh, based on the data that we've looked at. Also what impresses me is by this on scaling uh, and being able to provide constant care, we're actually tending to the health of these people better because it's only uh, when you have a problem that you end up in the emergency room and, and, and you're doing damage to your whole body 
just by even getting close to an event. That's exactly right. When you really think about it, a consumer wants to stay healthy. They don't want to think about their disease. And in the case of diabetes, which is always top of mind for them in terms of what they eat and what's my blood glucose, they don't want to think about that. So if we can actually build services that can handle that for you in the background and only alert you when you need to focus on your health and are reliable, that is ultimately the experience that you know these 30 million people with chronic conditions are looking for. And it's cost-effective. Another perspective here is you're not trying to go in and and take over what's there in the healthcare system. You're saying we can solve this at the edges, and it'll end up having an impact on the existing healthcare system. That infrastructure will change. The way we think about the healthcare system, I think our f- focus is on building these new unscaled services that can keep people healthier. So you have to engage less with the healthcare system. And then when you do have to engage with the healthcare system, using data and AI to make sure it's highly personal. If you go back to 150 years, you had this notion of a family doctor. They came to your house. They knew everything about you. It was very empathetic care. And then we went to this scaled healthcare system that we just talked about where you see a physician for maybe 15 minutes. They don't look at you. They're typing on the computer, and they know nothing about you. Right? We're trying to use these technologies to bring back that same family doctor experience. And, and it's very much about understanding you and keeping you healthy and engaging less with the healthcare system, not more. The, the end outcome, people are healthier and costs are down. Now, you've referred to artificial intelligence a number of times here. Um, and in your book, uh, you write, artificial intelligence is this century's electricity. What's the difference between thinking up a unique way of processing data and programming it and actually creating artificial intelligence? Um, Artificial intelligence is a system that learns and keeps adapting. I think uh, when you think about a lot of uh, the use of data in the previous decade, for example, when we started to become sophisticated about using data in our applications, it was very much about... um, sort of hard-coded sets of rules, collaborative Look filtering. Look at the data. Here's the answer. Here's the answer, and now let's sort of uh, keep matching against that answer as opposed to today. So uh, the the Livango example, uh, you know, the system gets to know a particular diabetic and their patterns and behaviors, and, they st- and it starts to give suggestions on what they should do to keep healthier that are unique to them. In fact... Uh, we, we've long believed that this idea that we have this thing called type 2 diabetes that applies to 30 million people in the country is, is largely incorrect. There's probably dozens of different kinds of diabetes, and we just didn't know that because we, weren't, we didn't have these data systems that were training and monitoring people at a deeper level to understand how our metabolic pathways behave in, in different individuals. In fact, there's a study that just came out in Europe that already said there's five different types of diabetes. I believe by the time we're done with this and these AI systems learn more and more about this, we're going to find that there's a lot more. That's, that's the power of AI. That's the power of AI. And I think it's important because I am constantly um, uh, pitch people say, and we're doing AI. AI is in there. And I'm sure that you're getting constantly people pitching you as a venture capitalist. Oh, yeah, we're doing AI. You have to have AI, whether you have AI or not. My, your- my, my, my favorite question um, when there's companies that have been around for a few years that come in and ask us for uh, partnering with them is, when did you start using the word AI? 
<laughs> you know, and 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 it, it's because it's a it's a word that you know makes you look contemporary. Everybody has started using that, but companies that are more than three or four years old weren't really using these techniques back then. So, so I know that there's a repositioning of the older uh, technical capabilities into AI. I've been speaking with Himant Tanasia, a venture capitalist and author of the book Unscaled. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health are immune systems, what happens as we age, and what that means. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the maker movement in healthcare and his experience developing a surgical tool. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Himant Tanasia, a managing director at the venture capital firm General Catalyst. His book is Unscaled How AI and the Next Generation of Upstarts Are Creating the Economy of the Future. Now we're getting down to medical conditions that on scale to the individual. And without that artificial intelligence and the ability to process your data, compared to everybody's data, we wouldn't be able to get there. That's exactly right. When you take this a step further, think about genomics. You should be able, we're, we're entering an era where we'll be able to design drugs that are specific to your genomics. And, and that is only possible because we're building these systems that learn and can start to understand, okay, here's the kinds of um, uh, drug targets that will work with certain kinds of genom- genomic makeup versus others. So it's all becoming more and more precise. In, in understanding us at an individual level and providing care just for us, unscaling it for us. Now, when you tend an application, we'll just call it an application, that is learning, what is the application telling you about its learning? It's saying we're seeing patterns this way and that way. Is that how data is clustering around here? Is that the kind of answer that they're analyzing? Yeah, that's right. You'll be able to see patterns that you're not even looking for. Uh, you know, typically the way we've always used data is we go into 
uh, a data analysis with a hypothesis and we prove or disprove it. This flips the model on its own head because we, we look at patterns in the data and then we try to understand if there is an underlying structural reason for those patterns and, and try to use that to learn and, and, and apply it in our, in our various applications that we talk about. So I think that it, it allows us to innovate in a much deeper and richer way that just wasn't possible before. I think people's questions happen at this point. Now, do humans then take what the what the program tells it and then make the program manually smarter because it, it taught that, or is the program making itself smarter? Yeah, so I think we have to realize we're in the very early stages of AI. So this human in the loop and having a system where uh, – Artificial intelligence tools help us understand data in richer ways, and then we cognitively figure out how to then we tinker figure and out add some more. Add yeah. some more. I think that feedback loop is really what's really uh, productive today in innovation across these different areas. I think this notion of generalized AI that'll just figure everything out on its own. If you ask me, and if, uh, and I've talked to many experts that are actually doing the work, it's decades and decades away. So there's no magical box called AI that learns this stuff and does it all by itself, and we can just all go to the beach. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> now, you're a board member of the Khan Lab School. Everyone knows about the Khan Academy and its instructional videos online. Let's take this question in two different ways. First, let's roll back to the Khan Academy. You were on their board and recently stepped down to become part of the Khan Lab School. Um, the Khan Academy let you do exactly, it lets you right now, you can understand for free, you can learn a whole lot of things on the internet with these videos. Um, and they say customization, you can customize what you're learning. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't give you an official degree. You're looking for your degree requirement, your, you did this, and all the stuff that you learn at school. Is that problematic? Yeah. We don't – in the long run, no. I think we're in this transition, uh, in my opinion, in education. So if, if you go back 100 years, we had this master-apprentice relationship, right? You would go apprentice in an area from a master. You'd watch them, and you'd become great at something you're really passionate about. And then the last 100 years, we started saying, no, it's going to be 30 kids to a teacher – all around the same age, and they're going to learn math at the exact same hour, at the exact same pace, in the exact same way. That's what education became. Yes, so that's what, education. <laughs> that's, that's right. The, the factory that we put our kids through. And then when you think about uh, where we are today and the vision at Con Lab School uh, that you know Sal uh, pioneered, uh, you, uh, so my daughter goes there. Uh, if it, she decides when she wants to learn math, she'll open up Khan Academy. And uh, now she's got the AI-based master that's teaching her how to factor polynomials. And if she's stuck, the system figures out what uh, lessons will be best for her to learn from. And until she masters it, she doesn't proceed. So this is a mastery-based system. You learn at your own pace. You're not stuck in this notion that uh, you have to be in every field with kids your age and you do it at your own pace. And how do you turn that into a degree that colleges understand? I don't think – we haven't quite figured that piece out, but – the, the good news is I think more and more colleges are trying to recognize that that old way of teaching doesn't really prepare us well. And so our belief is that 
A, the mastery-based system will train our kids in a productive way, and you'll see that in the various test results uh, that you end up taking in high school and so on. Uh, but I also think the college admissions uh, programs are starting to recognize that they need to think about the uh, capabilities uh, of these students in different ways and, and, and embrace these new models. So our hope is in the next few years that this, this can be a model that others can embrace in preparing our kids in K-12. Well, you have three kids. You have one child at the Khan Lab School. Two. Two children at the at the Khan Lab School. And you haven't quite figured out how it's all going to get. <laughs> we all believe in South Khan, so that's not a problem. Right. I love that we haven't figured out how it's totally going to get accredited and how, you know, it's like, well, it's an, it's new. It's entrepreneurial, as you say. It's 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 what's happening now. And uh, it's it's a question of figuring out what happens with these kids and how they go about it. My wife and I talk about that all the time because, uh, you know, our daughter's in ninth grade now and it's some, you know, the college is not that far away and, and is the system going to work? That gives us anxiety. But when we look at it, they're also really happy. And, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're learning and they're happy. And so we, we do take comfort in the fact that, you know, things are clearly headed this way and this will uh, end up in a good spot. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Will you end the book with the perspective on your children's lives and what this all means in their lives? And uh, for what, for example, you you never asked your children what they want to be when they grow up. Why is that? Boy, um, so I going back to this notion of having an entrepreneurial life. I think they should just pursue their passions uh, as and when they arise and have the ability to learn. Uh, to pursue their passions. And and if you truly believe that, then I don't think you want to preordain their trajectory towards a long-term end goal. That's the reason we don't ask. And 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 by the way, it's a very profound uh, topic in general because a lot of the jobs that exist today <laughs> yeah. aren't going to exist. Um, I want to uh, be this. Well, guess what? It's not going to be here. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. So, so I, I think becoming great at being able to pursue your passion, learn about uh, learn what it takes to be great at it and, and make a career out of it and not think of that as a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but rather that's just the way to live uh, is what we're training them for. Okay, so now I'm going to get back to the fact that you're a venture capitalist and all of this on-scaling is going on. Does that mean that we'll have fewer venture capitalists, less, fewer propositions can actually scale? What are your job prospects? I actually think we're in the golden age of venture capital. Uh, when I came, so I came to the Valley in 2011, and uh, which is what led to uh, eventually writing this book, just observing, gosh, entrepreneurs 15 years ago when I got in the business would be writing software to help doctors be more efficient, software to help accountants be efficient, right? We were essentially writing tools to uh, get people to do their work easier. And then this decade, entrepreneurs I would meet would say, no, we just want to build a new insurance company or a new healthcare company that delivers diabetes, for example, or a company that builds the modern car, right? And uh, when I think about that, that is a 30-year secular trend that we're in the, shift, in the midst of, where we have, in the past decade, organized society, uh, sort of content community and commerce online. And now we're bringing all the things that we scaled in the last century 
into this unscaled connected online world over the next two decades. So from my perspective, this is an amazing time to be a venture capitalist. And it's an amazing time to be an entrepreneur because there's so much to do. Healthcare, barely touched. Education, barely touched. Finance, barely touched. Government, I'll let you decide how functional that is. So there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. Well, Hamant, this has been terrific. I hope you come back. See us again. Great. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Hamant Tanesia. The book is Unscaled, How AI and the Next Generation of Upstarts Are Creating the Economy of the Future. It's published by Public Affairs. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today we look at our immune systems and what happens as we age. We'll hear from Dr. Thomas Olin, the CEO of Cancera from Stockholm, Sweden, about their global efforts. We'll also hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft about the maker movement in healthcare and his own experience, which resulted in making a new surgical tool for harvesting bone marrow. We frequently refer to our immune system, perhaps building it up, or the idea that it may be suppressed. But we actually have two kinds of immunity. We have innate immunity and adaptive immunity. I asked Dr. Thomas Olin, the CEO of Cancera, what's the difference? Well, starting with adaptive immunity, that uh, consists of, of white blood cells, B cells, and T cells, that are trained to recognize foreign bodies and react to them. But uh, the innate immune system can actually bring on an attack against uh, foreign bodies directly without sort of experiencing the nature of this immune uh, or um, We're born with body. that. Yeah, we are born with it. So that's the innate part. The adaptive part, either we've experienced it during our lives and we were exposed to it and created antibodies and can fight them. Right. Or we maybe we had a vaccine against them. That's working with our adaptive system. Correct. Now, over time, what happens to our immunity? Does it just get better and better? No, actually, with age, uh, the immune system ages as well. And this brings about uh, an imbalance. On one hand, the adaptive immune system becomes weaker and you get more susceptible to, to infections. On the other hand, the uh, innate immune system gets hyperactivated. So you get, you get sort of a uh, pro-inflammatory situation which uh, enhances the susceptibility to autoimmune disease, inflammation and also cancer. Now, let's go a little deeper into this innate immune system as you get older. Um, when you say it sort of gets hyperactive, why is it so active? Why isn't it just settling down saying, I'm old, I'm not going to do as much? You know, But it's doing the opposite. Right. And actually, we do not know the reason for this. Possibly it's a compensatory mechanism. As the adaptive immune system lays back, this, um, the innate takes a step forward. So in a sense, that may be compensatory, but we really don't know yet. We don't know yet. What we know is that uh, this activation of the innate immune system actually contributes to a number of disease that is associated with age. 
So uh, what we see in autoimmune disease is that certain types of cells that belongs to the innate immune system, they get activated. And you can follow certain of these cells that actually invade the brain and the CNS. And central others, nervous system. Central nervous system. And others are associated with the nerve inflammation in, in the pancreas, for example. So um, we can see that certain immune cells that... Um, Increases with age are associated with these different diseases. And they also are associated with cancer. So certain cells that are immunosuppressive in, in the tumor are actually also emanating from the innate system. So the idea is that could we modulate the innate system, we could also help patients with these diseases. And uh, that is our task here and our, the basis for our project. So we are currently in phase one with a small molecule that could be taken as a tablet uh, that really regulates uh, these specific cells that are associated with it, different diseases. So they try to bring them back to normal. Uh, so that's the main idea. And we have shown that in, in different disease models in autoimmunity and also most interesting in neuroinflammation. And a number of the autoimmune diseases are, have a complication uh, because uh, they have also an inflammation of nerves. And that brings about uh, pain. Uh, and also manifests uh, the inflammation, so you don't resolve the inflammation as you should. And that uh, brings you then again into a chronic state of the disease. Now remind us, what are some of the autoimmune diseases we would be familiar with? So that could be uh, Crohn's disease, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, it could be autoimmune pancreatitis, so there are and MS. So there are a number of uh, autoimmune diseases that are more and more common the more the uh, older we get, and the reason could be this aging of the immune system. Can we actually measure the state of our immune system? Well, we can monitor what we have in circulation. But the intriguing thing is that uh, it is our sort of vascular wall that determines what cells will go into the sites of inflammation, whether it's the brain, as in MS, or the intestine, as in, in, in Crohn's disease. And this mechanism, the, the transportation of cells over the vascular wall into the health tissue, is regulated by a system called the fractal kind system. And this is our sort of target for our drug. So our drug really interacts with this uh, fractal kind system, so it could block very specific cells to uh, uh, transport uh, from the blood stream over to the tissue. And by blocking the, this transportation of cells, you can block uh, block the inflammation and eventually resolve the inflammation. And this has been shown in, in uh, different autoimmune diseases, in the research studies, 
Uh, we have also been able to show that we can block the inflammation of nerves. And we can also block the activation of our spinal cord that enhances this sense of pain that we have in these different diseases. Uh, where are you doing your work? Are all the trials in Sweden? Uh, the majority of the science uh, that we have uh, brought to the table so far is made in Sweden uh, and uh, in collaboration with uh, scientists from the Karolinska Institute and University Hospital. The clinical study that we have recently started is performed in, in the Netherlands. So we are working sort of across Europe and we are now planning to also file for an IND in the U.S. Uh, during the coming year or so. You're doing the global crawl, we call it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All over the world. It's a global disease and a global need. Well, Dr. Olin, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back and see us. Thank you for the invitation. Dr. Thomas Olin is the CEO of Cancera in Stockholm, Sweden. More information is available at cancera.com. That's K-A-N-C-E-R-A, cancera.com. On Tech Nation, we've often talked about the maker movement, people who like to make things, which has blossomed with the growth of personal technology and the Internet. But now we have niche areas, such as Maker Nurse, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, there's the idea of the maker nurse, the maker doctor, the maker patient. Um, you know, take the nurse, you know, often the underappreciated but most core element of most of our medical care. They're the closest to the patient day to day. They see a lot of the challenges and problems. And often they become the kind of medical MacGyvers. They'll see a problem, for example, one nurse was in a cath lab where they do cardiac procedures noticed that they had to keep putting uh, blankets under the arm to put it in the right position. So she MacGyvered a, a tray and some joints and other elements to make that easy and consistent and uh, faster and more comfortable for the patient. And then democratized and shared that with others so it could be used in other cath labs. It wasn't something that a, a big medical device company was going to go out there and make. Or other nurses or patients have noticed that you know they have to carry their pole around and always get stuck while they have kind of designed new ways of making smarter hooks or ways of hanging their IV bag so they can be more portable or connect to their uh, wheelchair in smarter ways. So the idea that uh, anyone, particularly a nurse or a patient or a caregiver, can see a problem and then solve that, and sometimes they need to make something. That could be done with something found in the closet, sometimes now using digital manufacturing or 3D printing. And through this idea of, of an organization that started out of the Little Bits Lab at MIT, they started something called Maker Nurse, and they started creating maker labs in hospital and clinical settings so that a nurse, a physical therapist, a, a doc, or a care team could come and solve a problem with some of these new tools that can accelerate making. You could almost say all this stuff fits under Maker Health. Exactly. There's an organization called Maker Health. Uh, Anna Young out of MIT started this Maker Nurse and now Maker Health movement where they help catalyze this to healthcare organizations around the planet because we don't need to you know, reinvent the wheel. You can say this is a great kit that could be used to make a whole bunch of elements. It might be a cheap 3D printer. It may be uh, foam, foam elements. It may be a software platform to do the design so that you're helping others get past that that valley of doubt that, wow, here's some examples of other medical and other, and, and other individuals who've developed a new idea and built it, and here's some tool sets which with, with which I can do that. You know, kids are intrinsic makers. I've got 
a two and a four year old. They're always, you know, playing with Legos or other devices. We're all intrinsic makers and inventors, and it helps when we have that toolkit, those Legos that we can use in an actual healthcare environment, many of which do not need to become FDA approved, and then many of which, once they're invented, can be crowdsourced and shared and democratized. There's another group initially out of Israel uh, called uh, Tom, Tikkun Olam Makers, and they match uh, need knowers. This might be a, a young family with two or three children with a, a difficult neurologic disorder. They bring them together with makers and have a bit of a hackathon and blend the actual patients and family with the folks who in a 24-hour or 48-hour period have developed some amazing solutions. For example, children who have, have a lot of tremor and can't point on an iPad. They 3D printed a grid to help those children better interact with their mobile technology. Uh, and that they then put online and folks are printing those out and using those around the world. Just a small example. So we can all sort of connect the dots between unmet need and pain points and folks ourselves and colleagues who can help solve them. I think people don't realize that they're in a creative situation. Every night if you have to cook dinner, you always run into challenges. You turned around and you left it on too long. You didn't have all the right ingredients. You're constantly making new things. And, and experimenting. Turns out you're experimenting. Certainly, you as a pediatric oncologist must have had some experience and things weren't just working off the shelf for you. Well, medicine has many challenges and unmet needs and, and pain points. Um, I was lucky to go through the first year of a program at Stanford called Biodesign, which fun, kind of focused on on unmet needs and medical making and, and creating new new healthcare solutions. And the pain point I was experiencing, I was doing my bone marrow transplant fellowship. So in bone marrow therapy, we often need to get bone marrow from a donor. It might be a healthy brother or sister or someone who happens to be a, a match. And take out that bone marrow from the hip bone uh, and process it a bit and then give it to the patient who might have leukemia after we give them high doses of chemotherapy and radiation. So I would find myself as a fellow several times a month going to the operating room and to harvest bone marrow, the way we do it today is take a big needle, a trocar, uh, and go through the skin, under, usually under general anesthesia. The patient's asleep. And pull <laughs> Not out. that it hurts. It's just that they'll run from the room. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't <All> look right. <laughs> pretty. Uh, and put that little needle through the skin into the hip bone, the iliac, and aspirate or suck out about 10 milliliters, about a spoonful or two, of bone marrow. And you have to do that about 100 times to get about a liter of bone marrow. That bone marrow contains the blood-forming stem cells, the hematopoietic stem cells, which are used in the actual transplant. We hang them up like an IV bag that bone marrow flows into the recipient. The stem cells move to the bone marrow of the recipient and take up shop and now make a new immune system, the red cells, white cells, and platelets. But the key thing is to get that bone marrow in the first place, and that hasn't changed in 40, 50 years. So I'm doing this procedure. Uh, my hand's getting sore, let alone the, the rear end of the patient who has a a bone that looks more like Swiss cheese, if you were to look under the, under the At skin. At this point, yeah. And I think, here's a pain point. There must be a better way to do this. Um, and I kind of, in my mind, conceived of a bit of a medical rotor-rooter to do this in a faster, better way. I kind of coined the term marrow miner because we're mining from bone marrow. And to the element of the maker movement, I sort of had this idea. I sketched it out in a notebook. I went to my closet and found some wire hangers and a little old drill, and I mocked something up that I could do in a plastic you know, bone model. So that was sort of my first making was sort of kludging together a, a basic device that would work on, on a plastic bone marrow model. Then I went to some engineering friends, and we mocked up a higher version, a uh, higher-level version that we actually took into the pig lab at Stanford on, on pigs who were after a procedure had already been sacrificed, so we weren't using any animals that wouldn't have otherwise. 
And we showed that our device would basically move through the bone marrow like a little rotor and aspirate or suck out bone marrow much less invasively with only one puncture instead of several hundred. So that was the nidest, the beginning of the sort of maker meets need problem. Um, built the original prototypes, later got funding, built this into a full-on medical device that went through the FDA and through uh, clinical trials and patients. And now we can show that this marrow device enables us to harvest bone marrow you know, faster, less invasively, with less pain, and can get more stem cells out than the normal method uh, as well. And we can use those bone marrow stem cells for bone marrow transplant and for a variety of regenerative medicine applications. You may, in the future, may even want to bank your bone marrow when you're young and healthy, if, God forbid, you need it later to treat a leukemia or to build a 3D print a new organ from your stem cells. Pretty interesting. So you look all around you. There are, you say pain points, I just say opportunities for improvement. Opportunities are all around. And that's one of the things we need to instill in our in our next generation of clinicians and nurses and doctors, many of whom are getting sort of burnt out on the day-to-day of seeing patients and typing in the medical record. When they see a problem, they need to be empowered to think they can solve it. And whether that's 3D printing and putting together a medical device or building an app or collaborating with data sets in new ways or finding new ways to, to build empathy and connection with patients, we're always seeing challenges and there's lots of new ways to solve them, sometimes with very basic approaches, but some can ride these new exponentials of, of chatbots and AI and 3D printing and, and drones. Uh, to you know, For example, hacking t- drones to deliver blood uh, products in rural areas or after earthquake or after... In, in parts of Africa, there already is a company called Zipline using drones to deliver blood to a thousand or more clinics. So that's again this convergence of a challenge and idea and technologies which can help solve them. And I think that'll help address the burnout issue in, amongst many clinicians when they find that they can be both the need knowers and the problem solvers together. Important to your stories, you didn't go home and say, "Got to power up my my computer and my AI printer and my 3D printer and my six other things." You went home and started with the with the coat wire coat hangers. Yes, <laughs> doing the so much starts there. Start Draw a little thing, stuff. get the get the, and it, from from little wire coat hangers and sketches, uh, big inventions grow. <laughs> And that's been the history of a lot of medicine. It's, it's, uh, it's not often done in the most elegant way at the beginning, but you start and you iterate and you learn. It's like an experiment, just like cooking. Uh, and whether it's a drug, a device, an app, a digiceutical, uh, that's what accelerates innovation and, and brings us uh, new hope and, and uh, improves healthcare around the globe. Daniel, thanks so much. See you next time. Thanks, Mary. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.